My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast. Guys, welcome back to our next episode. It is going to be a tremendous time here today. Thank you again for everything that you do in regards to promoting the show. I'm very grateful for that. I'm going to have to be bulk recording this week again uh, because I'll be going back to Chicago again, this time with more of my family to go see my brother and sister-in-law. Really looking forward to that. So if anything is said in between now and the other time I record, well, I won't be able to get back to you podcast-wise because I will have already recorded the next episode. So thank you for your understanding. We'll be going today into the book of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 6. We'll be starting with verses 1 through 5. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is unlawful to do? Excuse me, what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Guys, this is a very important part of scripture, these couple of verses, because it shows just how terrible we can be when it comes to interpreting scripture, because remember who Jesus is talking to here, the Pharisees, the people who knew the Bible front to back far better, well, back to front if we're reading Hebrew, knew the Bible better than anyone else. And yet they didn't get this simple story right here. And yet, they cry against the apostles for doing something that looks unlawful to an extent, if until they actually look into what's going on. So the question becomes, the Pharisees, they have a big opinion on this. Were the disciples doing anything wrong by, you know, picking something up on the Sabbath and eating? The answer is no. The Sabbath, as intended in the law, was meant for people to rest and not labor. So that means you didn't go out and plant your fields. You didn't go out and try and make money. You were supposed to do nothing but rest, relax, and hear the word of God. But the Pharisees took it to the extreme like they always do in order to not only look pious, but also to make sure that it was never possible for them to do this incorrectly in their own minds, they made up rules and went, like I said, to the extreme. Often to the point where they would count the number of steps they took in that day and it wouldn't go past a cer- certain threshold. <laughs> it, Gosh, it just kills me to be actively thinking of something like that just so you're you're that careful. And that's where you get in a society that's built on legalism. We never have to worry about that. So Sunday is our Sabbath now. It's okay to do things on the Sabbath, but don't lose sight of what the Sabbath is by doing those things. That's what God is trying to tell these people. But as always, we get it wrong. It's even to point to how in the past the leaders of the Jewish faith 
would recognize that that some things need to be done because the world doesn't simply stop because a holy day is occurring. This man-made construct of what a week is, like it's not going to stop natural disasters from happening or wars to happen or what have you. If you look, I know I'm going to shock some people with this. If you look in First Maccabees, yes, in the Dreaded Apocrypha, which is at least in this point, not scripture, but history, we see Mattathias actually rallies the Jewish troops under his command to fight on the Sabbath as the Seleucids, who they were fighting against, were taking advantage of the fact that the Jews weren't fighting on this day to slaughter them. So, of course, you look at this rationally, well, God doesn't want me to work. Well, God also wants me to live. You got to break something like this in order to preserve you know, your life, your way of living. So even then, they knew that they had to work on the Sabbath in certain regards. Also, the disciples were following another part of the law that the Pharisees don't bring up because then it makes the disciples look good. This comes to you from Deuteronomy 23, 24 through 25. This is in the NIV. If you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat all the grapes you want, but do not put any in your basket. If you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to their standing grain. So what does that mean? That means if you were passing along, you're poor, you don't have food, you're a traveler, you don't know where to go, you could always does not specify a day, always go through one of these fields, take what you needed, and then move on. And that's what the disciples were doing. This was intended by God to look after the people who were poor, who couldn't afford to have a meal, or just were so out of where they normally were, they knew if they did this, they'd be okay. And that's exactly why Jesus allowed them to do this. And for people who had such a wandering lifestyle, they didn't really have a stable income for the most part. They did not. They relied on um, uh, donations from people. And some of the wealth they had already had from before, no doubt Matthew might have uh, provided some help from some of the money he had made before. If he hadn't given, given away everything at that point in time. But what we also see here is Jesus brings up David breaking the law. Now, for those of you who don't know, uh, King David is seen as the pinnacle as far as a king comes in Jewish history. He's a man after God's own heart, explicitly called that in the Bible. They look up to him as like, if I could just be like David, I'd be just right in this world. But we see in the story we're about to get to, David breaks the law and also lies in the midst of this. So, not only this, but the way Jesus refers to the Pharisees, it's like, have you not read what David did? It's such a slam by him. This is a little uh, passive aggressive, like, guys, you, you know this whole book, right? And of course, they, they know that they know, and he knows that they know, but he wants to mess with them. It's like, you read this book, but you don't get it. David was breaking the law in order to get food for his troops because they needed it. And why does God allow this and not call David out for that part of what he does? Because God sees the preservation of human life as more important than being obedient to civil and priestly laws that God made, but not the moral law God made. I'll go real quickly into what does that mean. Moral law? 
your typical right from wrong. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Those are all examples of God's moral law. Now, a civil law would be for us in this day and age, uh, pretty much your easiest thing you can think of would be a speed limit. There's nothing inherently wrong about going a certain speed. But in a country where you have laws in place, and it says going, you need to go 45 here, and I go 55, and I get pulled over, well, I'm in the wrong. And I say that as someone with a lead foot. So that's an example of a civil law. But also there were priestly laws, and these applied to the worship of God, to keep the priests holier than those around them, not, um, not emotionally or mentally, but set apart in such a way that they had to follow these rules that ordinary people didn't do. This was part of that priestly law. This bread was only for them. But the moral law in that moment overrode them to love their neighbor as their self. And we'll get to that. In 1 Samuel, this is 21 verses 1 through 6. I'm reading from the CEV. David went to see Ahimelech, a priest who lived in the town of Nob. Ahimelech was trembling with fear as he came out to meet David. Why are you alone? Ahimelech asked. Why isn't anyone else with you? I'm on a mission for King Saul, David answered. He ordered me not to tell anyone what the mission is all about. So I ordered my soldiers to stay somewhere else. Do you have any food which you can give me? Could you spare five loaves of bread? The only bread I have is the sacred bread, the priest told David. You can have it if your soldiers didn't sleep with women last night. Of course we didn't sleep with women, David answered. I never let my men do that when we're on a mission. They have to be acceptable to worship God even when we're on a regular mission, and today we are on a special mission. The only bread the priest, that the priest had was the sacred bread that he had taken from the place of worship after putting out the fresh loaves. So he gave it to David. So a couple things in that real quick. The laws they are talking about here, like even in a marriage, if you had sexual relations with your wife, you were considered unclean. So you had to do rituals to become clean again. So that's what uh, Himlech is talking about there. And that's what he's worried about because he doesn't want the men breaking that part of the law too when he's already breaking part of the law. <laughs> Which is astounding. But you know what? The things we focus on. Also, we see here, for those who know your story of David, David is lying. Saul has just tried to murder him, assassinate him. And David is on the run, and he lies about what he's doing in order to get the things he needs. And that is what later causes all these priests, except for one, to be murdered by agents of Saul. If David had told him the truth, he may have said no. And he may have lived as a result, but David decided his own life was worth more. But God still used this situation for the betterment of all. And even to the point where Jesus can bring it up as a specific example of what we should do. We'll also note at the very end here, Jesus yet again refers to himself as God without using the word God, because if he calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath, it's a clear indicator of who he is, since there is no one else in the world that can lay claim to that title. Moving on to verses 6 through 11. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was, page flip, there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. 
and he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around them, all he said, all he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Another beautiful story of God's love for us here and man's inability to see that correctly. Jesus, once again, shows his command over nature by calling this man with the withered hand to do the, the medically impossible. He could not move his hand. It was at that point, just the nerves had gone. The impulses that would have sent the signals to move just didn't exist anymore. But because the man had faith in Jesus, his arm was able to move and he was healed, which normally you would think that's amazing. God is so powerful and mighty. He did the impossible there. Let us worship him. But we see the Pharisees do the exact opposite. And furthermore, by getting angry and plotting to murder Jesus, who has done nothing except heal a man who does not deserve what has happened to him, the Pharisees have now proven that they are unqualified to lead Israel because they are going to commit far graver sins than a perceived sin of working on the Sabbath, which is one of the reasons they're angry, the other being that Jesus is superseding their authority, which, of course, he can do because he's God. (laughs) Moving on, we'll go through verses 12 through 16. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, who he named Peter, and and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Jesus has plenty of followers right now, but he specifically picks these 12 men. There were men and women amongst those followers. He chose these men to do so, to carry out his work. Why? Did it matter who he chose? A little bit. But at the end of the day, let me tell you about who these people are and what's going to happen to them. Because as we'll see across the Gospels, they don't get it yet. But at the end of their lives, they're on fire for the mission of God. We're going to start first with Peter. Peter was an uneducated fisherman who became the leader of the church appointed by Christ himself. And he eventually dies in Rome after being crucified upside down as he felt he wasn't worthy enough to die as Christ had. Remember that when Peter denies Christ three times later on. What a remarkable change for him. Next up is Andrew. Like Peter, an uneducated fisherman who tradition states he either died in an area near Russia or somewhere in Greece where he was likewise crucified. Now, this is the thing we have to bring up in these it is immensely difficult to figure out where the apostles went and what ended up happening to them. 
We just don't have all the records. It's not like Rome kept a record of every single person they killed. This could have been mob justice at certain points in time. And even getting after, out of that fact, some of these disciples go outside the Roman Empire to preach. So we don't have records from them either. The fact that we have anything at all is astounding. And we should be grateful for what limited information we have, even though in my heart of hearts, I want more because I love researching stuff like this. So that's Andrew. Next is James, also an uneducated fisherman. He was murdered on the orders of Herod Agrippa in Judea around, I believe, 4480-ish, maybe a little after that, if I remember correctly. Remember that when he and John bring up certain things in the Gospels. John, his brother, likewise, also an uneducated fisherman, At the end of his life, he was exiled to the small island of Patmos, where he would finish his ministry as the only apostle who was not murdered or martyred for their faith. Which is astounding, considering out of these 12, well, really 11 at this point in time, what happens to them? Philip. Philip is someone we know very little about, but we do know he was tortured to death in Egypt, Oh, and by the way, I should probably specify this for some people out there a little more squeamish. Some of these deaths are a little out there, so if you need to skip ahead a bit, I don't blame you. Philip was hung up while his body was pierced with iron hooks that kept him suspended up there, I believe, on a wall or rafter or something like that. What an awful way to go. And yet Peter didn't denounce Christ at the end. Bartholomew, someone we also know very little about, He was later martyred in an area around Armenia or probably around where modern-day Azerbaijan is by being crucified after his skin had been flayed off of him. What a way to go. I mean, there's a reason for my Game of Thrones out there, the Boltons exist uh, as people because people in the past did stuff like this to people who offended them. Next up is Matthew. Matthew, as you'll know, is a former tax collector who would later travel to ancient Ethiopia, and according to tradition, he was martyred for questioning the moral character of the king, some say because uh, one of the women he was going to marry was uh, converted and then she became a nun. Some people say it was his daughter. Uh, It's really difficult to pack it down, like exactly what happened there. The point being, he challenged evil, And for that, he was repaid with death. Next up is Thomas. You probably all know the term Downing Thomas. Well, he's the one who doubted Jesus' resurrection because he wasn't around with the others. Yet, when Christ appeared, he praised his name. And as a result of this conversion, is said to have gone to India, where he was murdered with a spear. Next up is James the Lesser. As possible, he may be a brother of Matthew. Uh, some believe, uh, due to them having the, uh, a father with the same name. Like we discussed earlier, it's not uncommon for there to be a lot of people with the same name. How many Johns are there? How many James are there? How many Marys are there around this time? Jesus as well, using the name Joseph too. Oh, excuse me, uh, Joshua. There's so many. So possibly his brother, maybe not. He lived to an older age than a lot of the others outside of John where he was thrown from the temple 
stoned, and then killed by a club that bashed his head in. What a Rasputinian death. Did not deny Christ at the end. Simon was a zealot. And you know what the zealots were? Terrorists. They would say freedom fighters, but they were denying the will of God and harming other people as a result, sometimes even their own people. He was a terrorist who tradition says was either sawn in half in Persia or in Britain. Now, you may notice if you're looking at your maps, those two are nowhere near each other. (laughs) Yet, this man, at the end of the day, who probably did some very terrible things while a zealot, did not deny Christ because of what he had done for him. Next we have Judas, sometimes known as Jude, to separate him from Judas Iscariot. He's a relative unknown, for as far as we know. He was beaten to death with a club in either Turkey or Persia. Those are a little closer together. But last, but certainly least, is Judas Iscariot. The man who would betray Jesus and die after hanging himself, causing his body to fall and burst open. What a tremendous group of men, even the worst among them. We see all these men betrayed Jesus later on by not following him correctly. But out of those 12, 11 repent and become the fathers of our church. All these men, minus one, were chosen by Jesus to do his good work in the world, and we wouldn't be here without them. Even though at this moment in time, none of them truly understand their mission or have a real spiritual relationship with Jesus, the fact of the matter is, God is faithful even when we're not. And even though it takes about three years, they get it, and they have a fire and a zeal for evangelizing and creating the church because of what Jesus has done, not for personal power power or glory, because I got to say, you give me those options, and if I don't believe what I believe, I'm going to say, nope, nope, I'm out. Yep, you don't, don't, don't flame my skin. I'm okay. But if it comes to the point of denying Christ, I can't do that because he's real. Next up, we have verses 17 through 26. And he came down with them and stood in a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. And who, who came to hear, hear him and be healed of their diseases? And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets." But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. 
Now, this is the part of Luke where he kind of sums up the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus probably gave this speech multiple times over, and it's collected for us in Matthew and Luke in this regard. But what we see here is that Jesus was incredibly popular for the wrong reasons. Because he could perform miracles. But most of the time people came to speak, they were in it to see that happen, merely in awe of the spectacle, rather than the person who wished to know them more. They're coming, and they know all they have to do is touch them, and they'll be healed. Some of those probably weren't in it for the right reasons. Some of them was like, well, I got my affliction healed. Later, Jesus, thanks for what you did. Others, like we'll see with the woman who was afflicted with that blood disease, comes to know him through touching just his garment, and she came in with faith, and Jesus rewards her for that. But the fact of the matter is, most of the people who called themselves disciples weren't true disciples because they had no relationship with who Jesus actually was. And we see here, also when he brings up the Beatitudes, wealth and the lack thereof is not always a sign of God's favor because those who are rich may easily spurn him and those with nothing may be his most faithful supporters. In either fashion, you and I, we must rely on God as those who know what we lack without his presence. I've heard some really bad takes before that if you have money, God doesn't love you. Or if you're poor, God doesn't love you. It's weird how that happens, those huge extremes. I guess God just wants me to be moderately wealthy. That's not how it works. Wealth can be a blessing that you can use to enrich others. It can also be an immense curse because it keeps us away from God and we rely on other things. Know who you are as a person and what you have with money and without money. Because if either option happens, we better be ready. Next up, we see that at times we may be hungry and weeping now, but Jesus will uplift us past these earthly ills, no matter what our circumstances in, no matter how pathetic my bank account looks right now, or that I'm stuck eating ramen just because it's cheap. And that means I don't have to spend a lot of money on things. It's going to be okay on this world and the next. Also, we see a very important point here is that if people hate you for preaching Christ crucified, then you and I are blessed. Jesus says it's going to happen. So guess what? It's going to happen. However, Make sure that this is what you are saying because we can easily fool ourselves into believing that we're being persecuted while we are actively sinning by not loving those around us. As we get later on forever from now in James, we see the tongue cannot be tamed. We are very poor when it comes in regards of keeping our mouth shut when it needs to be shut. We need to act pious rather than be pious. We've got to be careful that what we're saying is truth. And then when people come against us, that's okay. Because Jesus said it was going to happen. The world is actively against Christ, whether they realize it or not. 
so they're going to lash out. However, if there is no one in your life right now that you can think who would speak any ill towards you, this may, and I stress may, be a sign that our witness isn't as good as we think it is. Because like I said, the world is hostile to Christ and therefore to anyone who believes in him and proclaims his name. You and I should have people who despise us, not because we're being jerks, not because we are not loving, but because we are loving and because we are being faithful to Christ. That really ticks people off because they see the truth and they don't want to accept it. So if there's not a person in your life that would say something negative to you at your funeral, like my dad would often say, you may not be living your life right. Because the gospel is offensive, it's going to make people lash out. But once again, be careful. Don't just think, oh, they're against me because of Jesus. They may be against you because you're being you and not God's. And I've definitely had that several times in my own life. Be aware of yourself. All right. Next up, we're going to be going through verses 27 through 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Page flip. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from who takes away, excuse me, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you accept to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good, and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. A lot in that one. Guys, love your enemies. What does that mean? It means exactly what it says. Love your enemies. And we should have enemies if we're doing things correctly. But does that mean that by loving we're in our enemies, we can't hate evil? What, should we just be super passive and say like, well, I mean, they're just sinful people and I kind of accept that as reality. And I guess I just can't say anything about it either. No. Evil must be despised, whether it's you, whether it's me, but we never have the right to just simply write someone else off because they have done evil to us or others. That is one of the points being made here. Part of being a smart Christian is identifying when to deal with suffering and when to fight back against it. We must never repay evil with evil, but show even our worst foes the love of God. And it's precisely what Jesus does on the cross. Jesus is well within his rights to all the sinful men assembled there to wipe them out of existence for daring to strike the Son of God, for daring to say that he must be 
killed for his actions. Yet he didn't. Because if he didn't, he does not get to die and save us from our sins. Because our sacrifice was required for that. I'm not saying, go out there and get yourself crucified. What I am saying is that if you fought the good fight, and you get beaten down, that's what's supposed to happen sometimes. And we don't have to like it. But we do have to praise God in the, in the midst of that moment. So regardless of what people have done to us, we love them back. And part of love sometimes is cutting people out. Some of us have not been raised in good homes. I've had the great fortune to be raised in a good home. Not everyone can say that. So that means, it may, it may mean getting away from your terrible parents. Or even your terrible children sometimes. If they're doing sinful things, they refuse to change who they are. Cutting contact could be loving them. Because allowing them to remain is harmful to you, is harmful to them. It doesn't have to be forever. But there needs to be a separation for them to have time. God allows us all, even in our rebellion, to sin and get hurt. Even as he loves us. Because sometimes that's what it takes for us to come back to him. And that may never happen. It may happen. We don't know. We're not in charge. So if you have to cut someone out, keep yourselves safe. Don't stay in abusive situations simply because you think with your witness, they'll come out of this. Probably not going to happen. I'm not going to say it won't. But God wants you safe. He wants you to be loved by the people around you. And if that is not happening, find people who love you. Find people who are going to take care of you. Not because of who you are, but because of who Christ is and what he's done for all of us. And once again, guys, we should all have an enemy in our life at some point in time. Humans are flawed and pathetic creatures, and we are never fully pious and devout. Even after we've been made whole in Christ with his sacrifice and our call to repentance and we repent, but because he has changed us, we can then go to those who need to be changed as well and love them as he loved us. And that may require us to suffer. That may require us to be belittled, to be yelled at, to even be hurt sometimes. But all the people in the world need Christ. There's not a single person here who's perfect. If you look later to Acts and Paul, who did not deserve Christ one bit, Yet what does God do? Strikes him blind and forces Ananias, one of the greatest unsung heroes in the Bible, to go to the man who would have had him jailed and murdered and preach Christ to him. And without that, we lose the vast majority of the New Testament that is in the Gospels. Love your enemies. Mercy is not a weakness. But sometimes mercy can look cruel to those who don't understand. Like I said, it is a cruel mercy to cut people out of your lives who are being evil to you and to others. But the merciful thing for you and them is to get rid of them. Because if it continues to happen, you're not helping yourself, you're not helping the people around you, and you're certainly not helping the person who is causing all these evil things to occur. We are called to forgive, but never to forget. This is not a biblical principle. I don't know where people got this in their heads from the idea of maybe, you know, uh, was it one of the Psalms where it's 
uh, forgotten your sins as far as the East is from the West, which is to say, like, yeah, as far as uh, things are possible. That doesn't mean God forgot that they happen. It means he's acting like they don't because he has forgiven you. God, how can you know something that God himself doesn't? That's not how these things work. God has already forgiven us. We just need to repent. But as far as it pertains to people, uh, let's just say for the sake of argument, someone who has lied to us, they may do it again. Especially if they see us forgive them and then act like they never did anything wrong in the first place. That is a terrible way to forgive someone. I'm not saying that we hold grudges or constantly bring up the past sins of others to gain some sense of a moral high ground in this argument. But it does mean that we must be vigilant and wary of those who have wronged us in the past so that you and I, we are ready and alert for the moment it may happen again. If I know someone around me is a liar, is just taking advantage of me, it is merciful, it is helpful, it is loving to call them out. It is loving to sometimes remove yourself from the situation. And we get to judging in a second. So guys, if there's that one person you're thinking of, and no matter what you do, no matter what you say, they keep taking advantage of you, it may be time to cut ties. It may not. That is something you're going to have to prayerfully consider. I cannot tell you that's what God demands in that situation. You and he are going to have to work that out. So enough of that. Moving to verses 37 through 42. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. Here are some of the most misquoted verses in Scripture. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Judge not, lest you be judged, you will hear people say. This is everyone's, everyone's favorite verse of the Bible. You know why? Because it means you don't have to care about what I'm doing. I can do whatever I want. And that's simply not true. But there is a lot we need to learn from this because there are a lot of Christians out there who refuse to take this message to its full potential. They'll see, oh, well, these people in the LGBT community are committing sin by living in situations where there's uh, having free-for-all sex or just have, you know, I, they can transition to whatever. Like, yes, those are prideful and lustful and sinful things to do. But what about your time alone? When you're just on the internet and no one else is around. What about the thoughts of anger that you harbor for someone after what they did to you? What about that thing you just took and thought no one else would care about? And they probably still don't know it's gone, but you have it. Just because a sin is obvious to others and flamboyant doesn't 
mean we get to call it out immediately. Take care of our own sin first is how we learn to judge. People say Jesus taught people not to judge. No, Jesus taught us how to judge. Simply enough, get rid of the things in your life that are causing you to sin, then worry about other people. We are all sinners. So, but to those of us who have been saved by Christ, we are redeemed. That does not mean we stop sinning, but it does mean the cost has been paid. No matter what happens from here on out, we're his. This means that even when we sin, it is covered, okay? But we must deal with our own sin daily before you and I even start worrying about someone else. Devote yourself to wrestling with your sin and overcoming it with God's help first, and then go out to those in sin and call them out in love, not in a way that makes you look good. Christ is teaching this message in this particular fashion so that we are not apathetic about the sins of others or our own, but once again to show us how we can judge correctly. And guys, you go up to someone and they say, okay, yeah, sure, I'm doing this, but what about when you did this? And it's true? Admit it. Point blank, no hesitation, admit that particular sin, whatever it is. The amount of people that I've shocked by saying this phrase out loud, uh, yeah, that's true. Oh, yes, I admit that I do that, or I did that. It's astonishing, because most people expect you to deny your sin or to try and make it sound like their sins are just worse than yours. But we all know this to be a lie. When someone confronts you about this and it is true, show humility and admit your failings so that Christ can be magnified by your telling these people just how much that he has changed you and how much he is doing with you as you continually struggle with these certain sins. Don't lie. <laughs> that sounds simple. Don't lie about what you've done. It is a terrible witness, especially when you and they know you did that thing, whatever it was. Let them know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Because at this point, you can then talk about how it is possible to judge, how it is possible to do so correctly and in love, in love. Stress that part. Judge someone in love, not in hate, not in an attempt to make myself look better. Jesus judged the Pharisees. He judges you and I for when we sin. Does that matter who we are? But he did so in love because he wanted us to correct it and to be better, not to make himself look better. Because guess what? He's flawless. He's perfect. He can't look better than he already is. It's, it's impossible. But we need to do so correctly. I've seen way too many people out there who are just filled with hate in their hearts towards a certain group of people or a certain sin that's way more obvious than their own. And then nothing good comes out of it because all they've done is spewed hate in their heart, trying to pass it off as them looking out for someone else. And we're going to conclude this evening, or well, this morning, I should say, since we're releasing early, verses 43 through 49. 
For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruits. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When a stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Ladies and gentlemen, we must be producing fruit in our lives to show that we are his. Actions do sometimes speak louder than words. But if no one ever hears the name Jesus leave our lips, do they truly know why we are acting as we should? Do they? Like, oh, well, they're just a good person. You know, they oh, they look after other people. You know, they're just always kind. Yeah, they're just a very positive person. That's what the world is going to see when you act good, when you act well, when you are kind. Because they don't want to admit it's Jesus. But then pronounce it with your lips. The reason I am doing this because I was a sinner. God saved my life. Jesus changed my life. And I want the same to happen to you. There is no denying. There's no just saying, oh, they're just a good person. It's like, no, they are a good person because Jesus did a mighty work in our hearts and changed us for the better. But part of our spiritual walk is producing fruit. That means I'm looking out for others. That means I am making my mind and my thoughts better and more focused on things that are good and not just what I desire. Produce fruit so when people see it they cannot deny its source human beings can look like we're producing fruit but if you actually get to know them you're gonna see just how terrible and withered that tree is do not be that barren tree do not be something that looks like it produces figs but it's actually just a thorn bush you are worth more than that and then getting along with this idea, salvation is no excuse to stop working for the kingdom. We don't stop following God simply because our sin is covered. You hear it all the time. So I'm saved so I can do whatever the hell I want. <laughs> Which completely misses the point of salvation. Salvation isn't a get out of hell free card. It's not a, a carte blanche to do whatever the heck I want. It is. Just you and God coming together, realizing our feelings, seeking repentance, and then working in the kingdom to look after others. Thus, Jesus expects us, all of us, to follow his commands so that we show our love and devotion to him in a way that no one can deny. We cannot deny the person who made us able to overcome our weaknesses, produce fruit because of what God has done for us. But like he brings up, this cannot be done without a solid foundation, which comes from the words of Jesus and the Bible that teaches us his timeless message. If you and I 
don't know what it teaches, then how can we show fruit in our lives? Guys, if you're following along, reading the chapters before their release, I'm very grateful for that. But there's a bigger Bible out there. Don't just listen to me read it. Go out there. Seek someone else is doing it. Or just find your own quiet time to do it whenever you have that moment. Make the time. Make the effort. I know lives are busy. I know lives are stressful. But if we don't have that solid foundation, we're going to get picked up by the water and find ourselves on our back and drowning. No one needs to suffer through that. Guys, thank you once again for listening. This was a super fun episode to do. Please, if you have the time, go and leave me a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. Helps bring more awareness to the podcast. Keep sharing as well as you have on Facebook and the like. You can also find me if you would like. If for some reason you have to hear more of me, as a roundtable guest periodically on the Whole Church Podcast, I'm also one of the co-hosts of the Systematic Ecology Podcast, so check us out there. If you're interested in uh, reading some of my fiction writing, you can find my works at starvingwritersguild.com or on Amazon where I go under the name MC Ashley. You can contact us here at the Let Nothing Move You Podcast at gmail.com. And with all that in mind, God bless you all in accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you.